How many of you have been watching the World Cup? At least some. We got a handful. That's sad. Uh, all right. Well, I've been watching the World Cup. I was born in England. I think I get a pass on this one. I, uh, I have a little bit of British blood in me, and so I've been enjoying the World Cup. Well, last week, uh, before America was eliminated, previously, America played Iran in a game that they had to win. They had to win to get out of the group stages and get into the next game. Now, the game happened in the middle of the day. Uh, and yes, offering team, you can come forward and receive the offering as I begin. The, the, the game happened in the middle of the day, so it might have a very busy day, so I couldn't watch the game, but I was so excited to watch this game, I just, I, I wanted to watch it. And I get a text as the game is ending, okay? I was planning on watching it later that night. I get a text as the game ended from my dad, who's also British, and we like to text back and forth about soccer. And he says, did you see the game? And I said, no, but I'm watching it tonight. That was the hint. I didn't want to know what happened. And he texts me back. He says, well, I won't tell you what happened, but you're going to love it. <laughs> Which means America won, and I know what happened in the game. So I disappointedly go home, and I prepare to watch the game. Now, here's what's interesting. I loved watching that game. I loved watching that game. But it was a very different style of watching a game. Because I wasn't, throughout the game, wondering who's going to win. I already knew how it ended. I already knew America won. They were out of the group phases, and they were going to play in the next round. Rather, when the, when the heat got tough in those last 20 minutes of that game with Iran, when we were up, I think it was 1-0, and it just looked like, how are we going to keep this pressure off and keep the ball out of the back of the net? I already knew we did keep the ball out of the back of the net. I knew how the story ended. I was more interested in watching how it was that they kept this pressure off. I was so interested to see what plays got made. How are they going to do it? I already knew what took place. The game was no less interesting. I just knew the story already. I just was asking different questions as the story unfolded. Now, as Christians, we also know the end of the story. We know how this all ends. We know where this is all headed. Christianity tells us that history is being written in a linear fashion. And where we are in the story is kind of in this midway piece between God's original foundation, the coming of Jesus Christ, and now we're waiting for him to return. And we know what happens when Christ returns. He's already answered those questions. And so the question we're asking now is not, does Christ win? It's not, does God's vision for history win out in the end? We already know it does. The question we're asking now is we look out at the world and we see the battle taking place is, I can't wait to see how God does this. And with wide-eyed anticipation, we look out at all that God's doing and we say, look at how he did that. I never would have seen him work that play that way. I never would have seen him move the ball down the field that way. Look at what Christ is doing. We already know the end of the story. We're just asking different questions. Today we begin this three part sermon series through Isaiah for Advent. And Isaiah is a wonderful book to be studying for our Advent season. Isaiah is an Old Testament prophet who more than any other prophet, I believe, I believe more than any other prophet, speaks about the coming Messiah, coming the, the coming Savior, this, this person that would come and set things right in the midst of all the brokenness that the people of God in the Old Testament felt. And the theme of 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 this sermon series, or, or today, is anticipation. What it would have been like to be those, those people in the Old Testament reading originally the book of Isaiah and our passage today and, and listening to the promises of God, 
knowing what God had planned, knowing what at least the next chapter was going to be for them. Maybe not the very end yet, but what the next chapter was going to be. And clinging on to that with a childlike anticipation. Saying, we know it's hard right now. We know the pressure's on right now. But if God's promised that's going to happen, then it will. So let's wait with a childlike anticipation for this to take place. The theme is anticipation. They were waiting for their Messiah. Now that word Messiah is a Hebrew term. It it literally just means savior. It means the anointed one. The one who would come to fulfill the promises that the Jews had been waiting for throughout the entire Old Testament, ever since sin got introduced into the story. And what's interesting about Advent is Advent for us has kind of this this two, two angles that we view Advent through. On the one hand, as New Testament Christians, we look backwards to the promises that were promised about the coming of Jesus Christ. And we, we stand on this side of the cross and we look back at the cross and we, we're, we're in that place of prophecy fulfilled, anticipation fulfilled. We read the prophecies of the Old Testament and we say, yes, in Jesus. And so Advent, when we celebrate Christ's incarnation, we're looking backwards at how God fulfilled his promises to the people of God in the Old Testament. But it also has a relationship to the people of God in the Old Testament because we're also looking forwards. Advent, we look backwards at what Christ has already done, but then we look forwards to what Christ has still promised to do. And while the pressure's on, just like it was in different ways and different seasons, we know how the story ends and we wait with eager anticipation for what he's gonna do and how he fulfills his promises. Now, to talk about this theme of anticipation, we're gonna answer three questions from our text in Isaiah chapter 11. Three questions from our text about this promised Messiah, this promised savior that was promised to the people of God. Number one, who did they anticipate? Who did they anticipate? Isaiah chapter 11, verses one to five. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will, he will kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now immediately, let's pause right there in the passage. Immediately we get into pretty common language for Isaiah. I, a lot of the prophets have kind of favorite metaphors, fa- favorite similes or illustrations that they use to make their point. And Isaiah's was tree metaphors. Isaiah loves trees. Throughout Isaiah, we see him talking about shoots and branches and vines. He loves trees. And what we see is Isaiah's using this, in verse one, this tree illustration to say, out of the ruin that is Israel right now, the stump that remains of Israel, out of this stump, life is gonna come. Out of this stump, resurrection's gonna come. God's not done with this stump yet. Even though it's down at its stump form, there's still more coming. He says, a, a shoot shall come forth from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Now we know this is a messianic. What we mean by that is it's a, it's a, it's a messianic passage, meaning it points towards the coming of the Messiah. That's what we mean by messianic. Now, how do we know that? Well, because verse one says this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? Jesse is King David's father. 
okay? Now, why is that important? Well, to King David in the Old Testament, in 2 Samuel, we, we read that there was a promise made to King David, the son of Jesse. The promise was that one of his descendants forever, always, would sit on the throne of Israel. And so, so that was the promise. They were clinging to that. The reality was that King David had lived just about 300 years before this prophecy was written. And at the moment, no descendant of David was on the throne. In fact, the enemy was all around them. The enemy was kind of like bearing down on the city of, on the city of Jerusalem. It was bearing down on Israel as a whole. And they were clinging to these old promises that a descendant of David would always sit on the throne. And so you can imagine them kind of in this gloomy despair. Did God fail us? Has God let us down? The Assyrians are breathing down our neck. If they take us captive, as the Babylonians already have northern tribes, if they take us captive, well, then will the, will the promises ever get fulfilled? And so they're clinging to this promise that Isaiah tells them that, no, 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 I know it looks despairing. I know it looks like nothing can possibly back the Assyrians off you, but I'm telling you, a shoot will come up from the stump that is Israel. And, and then he moves on. And, but before he moves on, what we have to see is this is actually a comparison. If you go backwards just a little bit, on my Bible, it's the page previous. The tree illustration is not just coming into play here. He's just got done speaking to Assyria. The prophets in the Old Testament would speak to Israel, say, here's what's coming. But then they'd speak to all the surrounding nations as well. And they say, here's what's coming for you. Here's what's coming for you. Uh, Babylon, Egypt, Edom, right? In chapter 10 of Isaiah, he's speaking to Assyria. And it's really interesting what he says in, in, in chapter 10 to the Assyrians. He says, look, Assyrians, I'm gonna use you to bring my wrath on Israel, my own people. He calls them the rod of the fury of his anger. Isn't that interesting? So as this enemy comes up and defeats Israel, they're being used by God to bring judgment on Israel for Israel's sins. You know what the prophets were like. Israel was always getting condemned by the prophets for breaking God's commands, for, for, for worshiping other gods. And so God raises up the Assyrians, but then in chapter 10 he says, Assyrians, you got a big head about this. You don't realize who you are and who's actually in charge. You think you're in charge. Therefore, I'm gonna lop you down. Even though I used you for a moment, I'm gonna bring your empire to a, to a standing halt. And at the very end of chapter 10, we read this. He uses the tree illustration. He says, behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down. This is to Assyria. And the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an ax and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. What's he saying? He's saying, Assyria, you will be annihilated. Your day will come to a complete end. And when I chop your tree down, Assyria, there will be no resurrection for you. It will be over. And as history has told, that's exactly what happened to that empire. The promise God made happened in completion. But then turn the page, the very next verse, we see that, even though a similar judgment had come on the people of God, there was a deeper promise. God would not completely annihilate his people. There would be judgment for their sin. They'd be brought down to a stump, but from that stump, a shoot would come forth. There's a comparison here between the people God has chosen, which was Israel in the Old Testament, and the nations outside of Israel. Now, how is this gonna happen? In chapter 11, we see immediately that he's talking about a person he says, a shoot will come forth. And then in verse two, it says, and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. It's not just any shoot. We're not looking for a system. 
We're not looking for a governmental system. We're looking for a person. And the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. In these verses, we see at least three things. Number one, we see the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Now, in the Old Testament, the people of God didn't quite have the language of the Trinity to describe what they knew about God. Certainly, when you read the Old Testament, you can see the Trinity all over it. But the prophets, when they wrote about God, they didn't use Trinitarian language quite to the degree we have with the, the, the New Testament giving us insight into, more insight into who God is. So when you see the Spirit of God, certainly as we recognize it through the lens of the New Testament, we know it's talking about the, the Holy Spirit, but that's not necessarily what Isaiah had in mind. The word spirit, it means breath. It means wind, right? And so Isaiah is saying that the breath of God, the, the voice of God, the word of God, that the, the, the presence of God will be upon this particular person, the word of God. And, and then it, it says three things. It says, number one, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. How will the spirit of God be on this person? He'll have the spirit of wisdom and understanding. That's language that is used for governmental leadership. You have wisdom and understanding to govern, to administrate, to, to organize your kingdom in a particular way to go about accomplishing its purposes. He'll have that level of wisdom. He'll be a mighty leader. Number two, we see he'll have the spirit of counsel and might. That's general language, as in military generals. He's going to have counsel and might. Where he goes to bring war, he'll bring war and he will never lose. Where he goes to push back the enemy, when he goes to step into evil places, when he decides to move, he will win and nothing will be able to stop him. Number three, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That's language that we use around spiritual leadership. He, he will lead as as a man who is fully submitted to the will of God. He'll have total knowledge of God's will. He'll, he'll be in full submission to the Father's design and desires. He'll be, he'll be the kind of leader that you can follow because he will be underneath fully, fully the Father's design. And so you can follow him to know what are God's designs for your life. How are we to live? How are we supposed to structure our families? We look to what this person's life is and, and how he led and we follow underneath him. So we'll have governmental leadership, we'll have military leadership, he'll have spiritual leadership. And then verses three to five, we see that he executes justice with fairness. And he says in these verses, he does it in two ways. Number one, he makes sure that justice is not bent away from the poor and the meek. And then number two, he makes sure that evildoers have their say in court. This is two sides of justice that must be discussed. Because justice has two ends. On the one side, in these days, it's only in modern recent history that we get the idea that justice goes out evenly to all. And that's a gift that the Bible gave to the world. In just about every empire, anywhere you went, the king and those who were nobles, those who had wealth, those who owned land, they wrote justice according to what they wanted justice to be. And it always benefited them. If they wanted to accuse somebody, no matter what the situation was, there was pretty much nothing you could do to stop a noble from accusing you of something and being found guilty, even having your life taken away from you. Justice always bent away from the poor. It always bent away from the meek and it always bent towards the strong. And, and this is that when the anointed one of God comes, 
He's gonna govern and execute justice with a biblical vision of justice. Rich, poor, underneath the exact same standard. Strong, meek, underneath the same standard. God's word. He will not bend it one way or the other. He will make sure that there is fairness in terms of biblical fairness for all when they, get, when they come before the judgment seat of God. And then he says that verse five, verse four, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. He says the wicked, they'll have the day in court. He will come and bring final judgment. And let me say this. Oftentimes when we talk about justice and God's final judgment, many of us, cringe. And maybe if it's not us that cringe, I know that many in the outside world cringe when they think of God being a just judge who will execute his wrath and his judgment on the wicked. But why do we cringe at that? If we reject the idea that God is a just judge, that means that ultimately there is no justice. If we say, I don't like the idea that God's a just judge and that evildoers are gonna have their day in court, what that means is that we don't really care what happens in this world. We don't care if the wicked get away with their evil schemes. We don't care if the murderer gets away with his murder. Because ultimately, what we, what, what we really want, we don't want justice. No, see, see the, the heart of justice is knowing that there is a God of all justice at the center of the universe, and he will have his day in court when all will be measured And the promise of this is when the anointed one comes, he will take his place as judge and he will execute fair judgment and justice over all people. This promises that no matter what has happened in your story, what has happened in the bigger story of world history, what has happened to any time that you've ever had that inner pain inside your heart to say, does this ever get set right? And for for many of you, you've had that. I know I've had that. You just wonder, you know, I know no one saw this, and I'm keeping it between me and God, but does that ever get set right? The promise of this is that when the anointed one takes his seat, it all gets set right. Justice will be had perfectly according to the word of God. And it's the anointed one who will be over it. He'll execute justice fairly. Why? Because the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. Well, this prophecy was written in 700 BC, the 700 years before Christ about For 700 years, well, for 300 years after this, there were a handful of more prophets in the Old Testament. Then there were 400 more years, so 700 years total, where they waited for the fulfillment of this. And eventually Rome would come and they'd overtake Israel. And for 400 of those years, there was not a prophetic voice to be heard. Absolute silence from God in terms of new voices coming and sharing new revelation. And you can imagine the anticipation the people of God had in Israel, seeing their city of Jerusalem overtaken by the Romans, seeing their rights taken away. They're kind of bending the knee a little bit to kings they don't really want to bend the knee to, but the Romans are so strong, they feel like they can't do anything. All the while behind the scenes meeting, reading passages like this saying, an anointed one is coming who will execute justice. He will have seen what the Romans have done to us. 400 years of silence as whispers are passed down from one generation to the next. Children being raised with that hope. Their children being raised with that hope. And then one day a new prophet arrives on the scene. A man named John the Baptist. And John the Baptist says that he's proclaiming the way of the Lord. That all the promises, all the prophecies of the Old Testament, that they're all coming true. And the person you've been waiting for is arriving. And I'm preparing the way for him. And then one day Jesus shows up on the banks of the Jordan River to get baptized by John the Baptist. And what do we read in Matthew chapter 3? Verses 16 and 17. We read this. 
When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That language to every person that was there, they would have been looking at Isaiah chapter 11, verse two, and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. And they would have seen the spirit of God resting on Jesus at his baptism. And they would have said, it's fulfilled right before our very eyes. The one who was promised, the one who will set it right, the one who will govern, who will execute justice, who will be a spiritual leader, who will be a military conqueror, he has come. And the spirit of God is the evidence of this resting on this man. But they were confused. They were confused because what they knew about Jesus was that he didn't come on a conquering horse, but he came born as an infant in a manger. And they were confused because he didn't wear a, a crown of gold, but he had a crown of thorns that was smashed into his skull before he was put on a crucifix. And so they read passages like these and they said, I don't understand the tension. I see the person Jesus, but, I, but how do I reconcile what my, what my hopes are with what I see taking place in front of me? It's interesting, Jesus in his life took the title Jesus the Nazarene. And, and most of us, and it may be the right way to interpret it, but most of us take that to be interpreted as the geographic place where he was from, from Nazareth. Jesus the Nazarene, the guy from Nazareth. But that's actually unlikely. The, the word Nazarene actually comes from Isaiah chapter 11, verse one. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse one, we read this, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. They were waiting for the branch to come. And the Hebrew word for branch is nazar. Nazar. The whisper of the nazar will come. The branch will come. The nazar is being passed down. And then Jesus gets baptized and he takes on this title, Jesus the branch, fulfilling the promises from Isaiah that he was with them. That's who they were waiting for. But what effects did they anticipate? Well, we've already seen some of them. This is the second question. What effects of this anointed one did they anticipate? Verses six through nine. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child will lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. The weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What do they expect? Well, there's, there's kind of two, two themes we see in those verses right there. On the one hand, we see this, this theme of peace. Actually, the, the Hebrew term for it is shalom. You might, we use that in English oftentimes to talk about peace, but it's a deep-seated Hebrew term that has much more than our connotation of peace. It has to do with even the environment and nature and the animal kingdom and all of God's creation restored to the way it's supposed to be. But then on the other side of it, we see this idea of the knowledge of God going out. Okay, so we're going back. What are we talking about here? This anticipatory hope of the anointed one of God who will come and what will be the effect of his reign? Well, there will, be there will be peace. I almost said police. There will be peace. And then there will be the knowledge of God. Let's work through both of those. First of all, what's the imagery here? This wolf lying down with the lamb. Now, some people think, that there's a handful of ways to interpret this. Some people think this is talking about the future heaven. One of the challenges with that view is that it talks about 
a nursing child playing over the hole of a cobra. And it's interesting. Will there be children in heaven? Uh, we don't quite know. Maybe the answer to that is yes. But we also know that we won't be given in marriage. We'll be like the angels in heaven, says Jesus, where we won't have marriage. I don't think, I'm not sure if we can with any clarity say that there will be new children being born in heaven. And I'm pretty sure that when children pass, they're not going to be in the child age in heaven. Actually, the historic tradition on that is they'll be at kind of an adult age in heaven. And so if this is speaking about heaven, it's a little interesting. You got to deal with children being present there. Now, very, that could be answered by there will be children. I don't know how it works. But it's interesting. But so what could it be speaking about? Well, it talks about peace. The imagery here is of a return to Eden. In Eden. Now, before the fall, before Adam and Eve had their sin and, and, and sin entered into the story, they had peace with the animal kingdom. In fact, one of the responsibilities Adam had in the garden was to name all the animals. There was this shalom experience before, between all the animals where quite literally lion did not eat lamb. Where, where the animals that right now are, what's the word for eating meat? Not vegetarian. Carnivores, there we go. It's harder up here than you think. You forget words, okay? <laughs> right now, the, carn- the carnivores, they weren't carnivores. Now, that, that brings up a whole bunch of questions. Like, what did a lion do with his big, sharp teeth back in Eden? I don't know the answer to those questions. Maybe God prepared them for the fall beforehand, or maybe, you know, they didn't have those originally. What I do know is they didn't eat each other. There was a peace between them. Adam would have had no problem going and petting a cobra on the top of his head and being, I I call you cobra. That's what he would have had no problem doing. And so when this passage is talking about the imagery of lion and lamb dwelling together, it's getting back and it's saying, here's what the Messiah will do. What Adam had in the garden, he's going to bring that back. That level of peace, that level of security, that level of of knowing things are right and it's the way it ought to be. The Messiah, he's going to restore it for what it was. And then it says, the knowledge of God will be in the planet like the water covering the sea. Now, this is getting into some good doctrine. We don't talk about this that often, but Adam had knowledge, okay? That's a theological term. Obviously, we know what the word knowledge means, but he had knowledge of God. When we talk about theologically what that means, it means that that Adam's mind was in perfect submission to God. He was not omniscient. He didn't know all things. Adam had a lot to learn over the course of what would have been his whole life in Eden. He would have grown in his life as he learned more of God, explored more of God's creation, but he had a total knowledge. And what that means is there was not one bit of his mind that was tainted by sin. The seeds of sin were not in his mind. Every thought was God's thoughts. Every desire was what God would desire for man to live. Every inclination of his heart was submitted unto God. The way that false knowledge came in, it had to come from outside of Adam. The serpent had to tempt Adam and, and feed evil seeds into his mind because they weren't there already. He had total knowledge. Well, when this says that the knowledge of God will, will, will be on the planet like water covers the sea. It means that when the, the anointed one comes, one of the fruit of what his kingdom will bring is a knowledge of God, a return to what Adam had, where people can once again know God's design and have their mind restored from a sinful place where you don't know God, where you're thinking not God's thoughts and you're thinking wicked thoughts, but then you can be restored unto God and you can have the knowledge of God again like Adam had. I can think God's heart. I can know God's heart. I can walk after God and chase after God. And very literally, a physical peace will come. 
Now we can interpret this in a number of ways. Certainly in its most full sense, which we'll get to in a moment, an absolute peace like we talk about in heaven. But anyone who's a follower of Christ, especially if you came to Christ later in life, you'll know the peace of Christ that God brings in your heart once you believe in Jesus. Some of you are very violent people, and I mean that very physically. Many of you had violent testimonies. And if it wasn't like fighting violence, there was a violent attitude, there was a violent heart. But when you learned the way of Christ, he brought a meekness about you that made you a peacemaker when you went into places. And you're already experiencing in part what this is getting after because of the anointed one who's come. Now, what have we seen? The people of God were living with this anticipation, this waiting, this hunger. God's gonna restore Eden. He's gonna make it right again. The third question is this. What purpose, to what end would the anointed one come? Verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Right there, we see Isaiah's whole theme from the book of Isaiah. The, the, the stump, the, the shoot from the stump of Jesse, when he comes, he's got a purpose. And what's he gonna do? He's coming for the nations. And he's gonna be established as a signal. Now that word is used eight times in the book of Isaiah, seven of them in reference to the nations coming to God. What's the signal? Well, that, that word, it can also be interpreted flag or banner, a signal. What that would have inter been interpreted as is after a battle takes place, the victor of the battlefield would put his flag in the ground, a big, tall one. And as he put his flag in, in, in the ground, it would communicate two things. To those who were for the king who won, it would say, victory has been had. Come underneath the resting place, the safety, the banner, the signal of God's presence. Anywhere near here is safe territory for you. And what would it communicate to the enemies? It would say, don't you think about coming here because this is the king's land. It would say, the moment you come here, you experience the judgment of the king, so you better flee. Now Jesus is the signal that has been raised. He's, and he's come for a purpose. He's come to gather the nations. What's the point of the signal? So that the signal can be planted on the land so that in this verse, we see the nations from all around the globe will see the signal raised and then they'll come and find glorious safety, find peace in a resting place underneath that signal. That's what he came to do. Now, what is Christ doing right now? This is exactly what Christ has done. Jesus has become the signal he has gone underneath the wrath of God. He's sacrificed his life underneath the blood, underneath the wrath of God, giving his blood so that every person, no matter what nation you come from, no matter what story or background you come from, can find themselves resting underneath the banner of God. Because the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. So Jesus does the hard work of entering into the human story, going underneath the wrath of God, and then establishing himself as a signal, as a banner for all the nations to see, come find peace here with me. Now let me try to explain this to you. Whenever I preach on prophetic passages, one of the challenges we have is trying to wrestle through how do I reconcile that some of this, I, I can see how it's already completed in Christ. But some of it, I feel like it's not yet completed. There's more to come. Well, there's two kind of ways we can talk about this. And one of them, I'll use an image to talk about it. We call this image the mountain peaks of prophecy. And I almost changed this to the skyscrapers of prophecy for you guys, but I ran out of time. So we're gonna go mountain peaks of prophecy. 
Oftentimes, if this is about a little prophet over here on the left, if you were looking at this from the prophet's angle, and you were just looking at, not from our angle, from the side, but from the prophet's angle, looking at those two mountain peaks head on, what they would see is, off, that would look like one mountaintop. And on the top of it, they would see prophetic passages that speak about the crucifixion, and prophetic passages that speak about the crown and the glory and the, the final coming of Christ. But it all would have looked like one from the prophet's lens. But then if you look from the side, from this angle, like we're doing right here, you can see that actually in history, there's kind of this gap. Many of the prophetic passages being fulfilled by Jesus when he first came on the cross. And yet many more being fulfilled when he returns when he comes back. And in between those two moments in time is this age that we're living in right now. And what we call it, we call that the already not yet. This place where already so much of this has been fulfilled. And yet not yet because we, we still have an anticipatory hope. We're waiting for still more to be done. Now, when we talk about already not yet, what's already been fulfilled? This is where I think we get off a little bit. We, we get off in the wrong way. Most of us, when we think of prophetic passages like this, we tend to put far too much emphasis on the not yet. And we don't realize just how much has already been accomplished. We tend to only look forward. And, and we need to look forward. We need to look at what God's gonna ultimately do. And we need to cling to that hope. But we also have to recognize what Christ has already accomplished in fulfilling these passages. Jesus is the signal that has already come. In fact, in Romans chapter 15, the apostle Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 11, what we just read, to say, he's already come. He's already accomplished this. Now, how has Jesus already accomplished this? In many ways, it's literal, it's real. He is the king. Jesus Christ rules right now as king. Whether or not any person chooses to believe in that, he is ruling and reigning as king. That's why we call him the king of kings. No matter what president or what king or what prime minister or what governmental leader chooses to believe, whether or not they know it, there is a king above them, a king of kings. He's over it all. And right now he is ruling and reigning over a kingdom. And that kingdom is working primarily through his church. Now this is where this gets so exciting. If you know that the king is ruling, what do we know about him? We know that he's a good leader, that he rules and reigns with wisdom and understanding. That means he's a governmental leader. He is leading a kingdom that will expand and he is administrating it just the way he needs. He's got every local church in the exact places he needs and he is orchestrating by the power of the Holy Spirit the kingdom of God to move forward exactly as he needs it to be moved forward. Why? Because the banner's been raised. And now we're in the process in this church age of the nations coming to see the banner. And his kingdom is planted in all these different nations and he's administrating it as a good leader. And he's a war leader. In the Reformation days, actually, the, the, the name they gave the church was the church militant. The church militant. You know why they gave him that name? Because Jesus said to Peter, you will attack the gates of hell and the gates of hell will not prevail against you. He said, you will go forward and as the church goes forward, you will conquer in the name of Jesus. Now, we don't use physical force to win underneath Christianity. In fact, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. We use prayer and meekness and service and love of our neighbor and, and grief over the remains of pain and sin in this world. But through these otherworldly weapons of the church, the kingdom of God is moving forward as a, as a military campaign and gaining ground and going to the nations and calling the nations to the signal that is Christ. 
And he is a spiritual leader to follow. See, the king has already established himself as the spiritual leader. Right now, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you decide to follow him. What does that mean? To follow Jesus is to be done with your own ways and to recognize that he's the true spiritual leader. He's the one who has come and established himself. And then you place yourself underneath him and you say, whatever you tell me to do. I love what D.L. Moody used to say. He used to stand in tall buildings and say, if D.L. Moody told me to run and jump out that window, I'd run and jump. Or no, if God told me to run and jump out that window, I'd jump out the window. Now, God's not going to tell him to jump out the window, of course. But the point of it is, whatever God tells me to do, why? Because he's a faithful spiritual leader. He's not going to lead you astray. Now, many of you in this room, I suspect you've been, maybe been following Jesus for quite a while and, and you've never heard this put quite this way before and you need to hear it this morning. Jesus is not only your savior. He's your Lord when you decide to trust in Jesus as well. He is your Lord. Many have trusted in Jesus as their savior and what they've done is they've trusted in Jesus as this kind of get out of jail free card, knowing that I was told that if I just trust in Jesus and I come to church on Sunday, that I'm not gonna go to hell. I won't experience judgment. It's not quite the way it works, actually. See, see, to receive the grace of Jesus Christ, you need to trust in him both as Savior and Lord. You need to recognize that he's the banner that's been raised. He's the governmental leader that's the king of kings. He's the military conqueror that's ruling and reigning right now, and he's the spiritual leader, and he's the just judge. And so you put all of your life underneath him, and you do anything he tells you to do. You go anywhere he tells you to go. He's both your Lord and your Savior. See, this is all in the already, and yet, and also not only that, but there's a peace. Now, is the lion laying down with the lamb right now? Well, no, lions eat lambs still. And yet there's a real sense that the kingdom is bringing peace into this world. Where Christianity goes, light goes with it. Where Christianity goes, where Christians go, where missionaries go into the darkest of places, even cities like this, when Christians go, they bring the light of God with them. And as they reach their neighbors, they turn people who, are, people who have no idea about God, who are far from God, who are violent in their heart towards God and towards others, some of them violent in their physical ways, and they bring the peace of God with them and hearts are turned to peace. And as people come to know Jesus, more people are coming to have that peace of God in their heart and nations are being changed to be more peaceful. But yet, even yet still, there's still a not yet anticipatory hope. Even with all of that taking place right now, we still look forward to a day that is still yet to come. Why? Because we know that there is going to come a day when Christ does return. And in that day, it won't just be a partial, a partial kingdom in the sense of we can't physically see it with our eyes, Jesus reigning on it uh, from his throne, but we will see with our own eyes what is actually true already right now. Hebrews chapter 2 says, though he's ruling and reigning right now, we can't see it with our eyes. But in the day that comes, when Christ returns, we'll see it with our own eyes. Hebrews 2, verse 8, it says this, He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. It already is in subjection to him. Just not yet can we see it. But there's coming a day when Christ will return. Now, what's the hope of that? See, in Advent, we look backwards. We look to what Christ has already done. And the remarkable thing about this entire story is that Advent celebrates that when when God sent the, the, the pillar, when he sent the flag, the banner to which we would gather underneath, he sent him in the form of a child born in a manger, laid in a manger. Isn't that remarkable? It, it flips the entire script of what strength looks like, of what power looks like, of how things ought to be organized. A little child born to 
a mother who came from no wealthy or stately background to an outskirt town in Bethlehem, right on the, the northern tip where, where, where no one came from that town. In fact, they used to make fun of Jesus from coming from that place because it was so far outside from where Jerusalem was and where they thought conquering heroes ought to come from. When Jesus came, he flipped the whole story on its end and he came in the form of an infant. Shepherds actually came that day and they said that they don't quite know what's going on, but they saw thousands of angels in the sky proclaiming the coming of the Messiah. Why? Because the angels knew the depth of what was taking place when that angel, when that child was born, even though the shepherds didn't understand it, even though I don't even know if Mary fully understood it. She had a sense of it, certainly, but I don't know if she fully got what was taking place in the birth of that child. Jesus has come, but he will come again. And in Advent, we look backwards to the peace that Christ brings. In Advent, we, we have the sense that things aren't quite right, but we know that there's a stable place to find rest in Christ. And so whatever's going on in your life right now, I, I hope that Advent serves as, as a sort of peaceful rest for you to remind yourself that Jesus does rule and reign right now. That wherever the brokenness is still lingering in this world, which there is until Christ return, returns, that you can look to Christ and you can know he is ruling right now. It, this is not out of his control. His church is moving forward the way it needs to. My life, we're not wondering what happens in the end. I know where it goes, despite whatever I'm going through. And Advent's a chance to look at what God's already done. But then it's a chance to cling to hope again, like the people of God in the Old Testament. And to cling with an eager, childlike anticipation that says, he's coming again. And it can be before the sun goes down today. And to ask yourself, am I ready for it? Am I hoping for it? Am I letting the whispers of the coming of Christ go from generation to generation? Not only to your own children, but to the children that you're a part of their life by virtue of being in this church. Are you sharing that downwards as you raise up the hope knowing that Christ will come again? The question we should be asking in Advent is, is not will Christ win? Will he have victory? The question that we know the end of the story we know the story is already written. He does. The question we should be doing is looking with, with eyes wide in anticipation at every play that God makes and saying, how does he do it? And every time that he moves the ball down the field, we gather together and we celebrate. And we say, did you see what God did over here? Have you seen the victory he brought over here? And that's what the church family does together. That's actually why we gather on a Sunday morning is to proclaim that and to share those victor victorious stories with one another. I want to pray with us right now and as I do, I, the prayer I want to pray into us is a prayer of Advent. It's a prayer of rest in Christ. It's a prayer of knowing that the king has been established. And, and we're not like those in the Old Testament who, who are wondering, what's this going to look like? When will he come? He actually already has come. And yet we're just the same as them. We're lingering and we're hoping. Will you pray with me? Lord, we do pray right now a prayer of Advent as we, uh, as we cling to the promises of Christ, as we cling to the one who has come, God, we, we, we announce and we proclaim over this church family that Christ has come. And God, I pray that into our lives right now. Whatever our stories are and wherever there's brokenness, wherever there's longing and kind of unmet expectation, wherever actually we're headed into, into Advent and we have more of a sense of the weight that we're carrying, whether that's because of health or just because of brokenness in family, all sorts of unmet expectations, God. God, I pray that we would look to the banner that's been established, 
the signal that's been raised to the nations. And we would not be like those who live without hope, but God, that we would find ourselves fully submitted underneath that banner, resting, as verse 10 says, resting underneath the kingdom of Christ. Give us that peace this year. And God, I pray that you'd form in us an anticipation, a hunger for his return that marks us as a people, that marks us as those who look forward knowing that there is still some that's not yet done because he's coming back. And when he comes, there will be a peace that is even beyond the peace we have now, our full return to what was in Eden. God, I pray this in Christ's name, amen.